Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant, and this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hey, Karen, how's it going? Great. How are things in Wisconsin? Oh, well, kind of foggy, but warmer than usual. I think global warming is here to stay, actually. How are things out there in L.A.? Really, really foggy here today also. Yeah, huh? the whole nation must be covered. So today I thought, uh, well, you and I decided that we would talk about the United States' fourth annual breastfeeding summit. And just for those of you out there who have not heard of the Breastfeeding Summits, these summits take place in Washington, D.C. every June for the last four years. And they started with Surgeon General Coop back in the 80s, and they re-emerged about four years ago. They're sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine and the Kellogg Foundation. The summit brings together various stakeholders who are central to the promotion and success of breastfeeding moms and babies. So the idea is that it's not just healthcare providers who are coming together, but rather it's people from state and federal government, insurance companies, social marketing specialists, healthcare providers, researchers, corporations, and nonprofit organizations. And people are invited to to the uh, summit. I went to the first one. It was amazing talking to these people who are from all these different places that I've never heard of before and to see that they're focusing on breastfeeding in ways that I would have that I had no idea. So this summit this year was titled First Food, the Essential Role of Breastfeeding. And in looking at the different topics that were covered, it seemed that many of the speakers were focusing on reducing health disparities among different socioeconomic and racial groups by promoting and supporting breastfeeding women. Uh, because obviously, if a baby is breastfeeding, she and her baby will be healthier, which helps to bring everyone, regardless of race or income, to a healthier state, which will eventually elevate our health for the nation to a higher normative health status. That sounds like it was a really, really inspiring um event to be a part of. I wish I'd been there. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully everyone would get a chance to go at some point. And so all of these lectures that were presented at the summit are published in the Breastfeeding Medicine Journal in October of 2012. But we'll just go through a few. And I'll start with uh, the first one, which I liked quite a bit, which was the Honorable Heather McTeer. She wrote a topic called Fat, Young, and Poor, why breastfeeding is a critical weapon in the fight against childhood obesity. So Honorable McTeer is an attorney, and she's a former mayor of Greenville, Mississippi. And she brings up the fact that obesity rates are growing, which we all know, and particularly childhood childhood obesity rates, which is pretty scary because they've gone up from 7% in 1980 to 20% in 2008. And I'm not talking about just those kids who are overweight. I'm talking about obesity, which, and these are the rates that she's seeing in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, she, as the mayor of Greenville, she saw this firsthand 
in the Mississippi Delta because they have the highest childhood obesity rate in the United States, with now almost 40% of children under 18 being in the obese range. Mississippi also has the highest rate of teen pregnancy, and she believes that these young moms don't get the education and support to breastfeed, which takes them down this path of worsening obesity since formula feeding increases the risk of obesity for moms and babies. She feels that this message of breastfeeding as a way of combating obesity is hidden in her culture and stresses that breastfeeding is the natural way of getting a baby to understand portion control and appetite because they control feedings and they're not being forced to eat a certain amount in a bottle, and which I think has, you know, I think there's good evidence for that. We've talked about some of that. In her article, she discusses the challenges of getting her poor, young African-American population to breastfeed. And she feels that there are still many in this population who don't know why breastfeeding is important and that breastfeeding will reduce the risk of obesity. She feels that many won't consider breastfeeding because they don't want to impact their ability to get or keep a job. She's worried that if that if these women say that they're breastfeeding or that they need breastfeeding breaks, she's worried that they will lose out on that ability to be candidates for um, for these jobs. She also goes on to say that many of these poor women live in areas of highly concentrated poverty, so they don't get the assistance that they need because of the overwhelming number of moms and babies who are on WIC in these areas, the Women, Infant, Children program. And WIC, as we know, our federal government WIC, provides a lot of breastfeeding support, but the sheer numbers of, of these families on WIC are so large that the number of staff can't have as great of an impact on this population as they can in other areas. She also said that there's only one board-certified board lactation consultant in the whole Mississippi Delta area. So, of course, women who begin breastfeeding can't really get really good professional support. And she has a few ideas to impact this population. First, she feels that other social groups, such as churches and sororities, should embrace breastfeeding as an important health issue and provide support groups and lectures and social events around breastfeeding. The other really interesting thing is that she mentioned when Beyonce breastfed her baby daughter, Blue Ivy, at a New York City restaurant, that really hit the news. And this brought up a lot of conversation in her community about breastfeeding especially about weight loss and child health among black women. So she feels that embedding breastfeeding in social media and popular culture is really important. And then she brought up another issue about industry and that industry really needs to look at this issue of breastfeeding because when they're determining whether they're going to establish themselves in a community, they look at wellness factors in the population and they don't want to establish in a community that's going to make them incur large health care costs for an obese, chronically ill group of employees because not only will they have higher health care costs, but they're going to lose sick time and have lower production. So if these poor communities have lower breastfeeding rates, they're going to have more obesity, which leads to more chronic illness, and it lessens their chances of increasing their job opportunities in their communities because the employers are not coming there. So I thought it was really a great article kind of putting all of the socioeconomic factors that keep us healthy all into sort of one bundle and, and showing how breastfeeding is so important. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. Yeah. So yeah, let's move on to what you have. 
Um, so the the first article that really jumped out at me was a really um, short blurb about Nevada's Infant at Work program um, by Kelly Langdon. And she spoke about this um, program that began in 2009 in Nevada in the state health division. And they piloted an infant at work program. And this um, enabled employees to bring their new babies to work with them and care for them while doing their jobs until the babies turned six months old. Mm. And I I had never really heard about official programs to do this and, you know, a large organization. And I was like, wow, what a what a neat idea. They did this originally because they had five pregnant employees in the division, and they were very concerned about um, losing the employees um, or, you know, having those employees being out for a long period of time. And also at that time, um, the state was going through a lot of challenges. So employees in the state were facing pay cuts and furloughs. And in general, um, there was sort of low morale. And so around that time, the Nevada WIC office discovered that the Arizona Department of Health had an infinite work program, which had been successful for 10 years. And they um, approached some of the people in the division, approached their administrator, and he immediately embraced the idea and began to draft a policy for the health division. The um, Nevada Department really turned to the Arizona Department to use sort of their policy as a sample. And also, throughout the research and planning stage, um, turned to the Parenting in the Workplace Institute website, which is www.parentingatwork.org. And they found that to be a really helpful tool. Interesting. When the program when the program began, they um, they started with a pilot program, and essentially they had very very low cost to start up. They just installed some changing tables in their bathrooms. The parents were responsible for all of the um, babies, all of the things that the babies needed in the workplace, and um, once it was underway, they found that it worked really well and that it worked most importantly because the parents really worked hard to make it succeed. They were enthusiastic about the program, and so they offered responsive care to their babies so as not to disturb their coworkers. And as a result, the babies were extremely content. They, um, in the first six months, babies sleep a lot. They, you know, enjoy social interaction. And these babies were typically healthy because they were breastfed longer and also, they weren't exposed to large daycares. Right, right. What a great, what a great idea. The benefits for the business were, um, they found surprisingly, the employees were actually returning to work sooner than normal. On average, they returned at six weeks rather than the usual twelve weeks of maternity leave, and um, that really helped the department to have their jobs vacant for shorter periods of time. It was found to increase employee retention. They had higher morale. It lowered healthcare costs, and it was a good recruiting tool for new employees. Yeah, that makes so much sense, doesn't it? I bet a lot of my patients would go back to work earlier if they knew that they could bring their babies with them, and they would be happier yeah. because then they would, you know, get out of the house. And even if they came back part time, I bet that they would be uh, very happy and enthusiastic. Yeah, I was really excited to read about this, partly because of my personal experience. When I I was still in medical school when I had my first child and. When she was just about three months old, I returned to class. And it was part-time, but I took her with me. And 
the school was very accepting of that. I had her in my sling most of the time. I breastfed her in class, and it was it was really wonderful for me to be able to do that. That's cool. Yeah, good model for other students for sure. And and they found that the um, program was really easy to um, implement and very effective. So I'm hoping that this will be spreading to more places soon. Let's hope so. Absolutely. So I'm going to talk about Ted Woleen's article, uh, Using Social Media to Promote and Support Breastfeeding. I don't know if you've ever met Dr. Todd Woleen, but he's a pretty funny, entertaining guy. Uh, He's a pediatrician, and he's the executive director of the Breastfeeding Center of Pittsburgh. And he, whenever I've heard him talk, he talks a lot about breastfeeding and social media stuff. His premise is, hey, we spend tons of money on bench research, population-based analysis, and financial modeling on the cost-benefit of breastfeeding, but we still can't can't get young families to breastfeed for very long, and our rates are still really low, despite all of these resources that we put into studying breastfeeding rates. So first, he talks about Generation Y, which is the current group of people having babies. I thought for sure I was Generation Y, but I'm a baby boomer, unfortunately. I thought, cool, I'm like that, but oh, wait, no, I'm not. Um, and and he describes them as having one major characteristic in common that they're all online. Which I have to say, maybe some maybe most baby boomers are now. I'm not sure, but for sure, Generation Y is. He just, oh yeah, my yeah. toddlers are practically online. Right, exactly. He de- he describes them as suspicious of any information from any source that's not from their inner circle of likes, follows, or a feed. <laughs> So he feels that we need to get inside their worlds through social media. And then he goes on to describe what a friend is to Generation Wires, that they, they're their friends, you know, who they hang out with in their neighborhood, from school, church, teams, and all that kind of stuff. But they're also people from their favorite bands, artists, athletes, and they don't have any geographic boundaries. So the friends can be global, and they haven't, they haven't even met many of their friends. So the beauty of this sort of interconnectivity between people and networks, such as Facebook, is that these communities of interconnected people develop something called groupthink or crowdsourcing, uh, which we know was really important in the success of Arab Spring. So he points out that what we need to do is rather than have websites that talk about breastfeeding, is to get into these social media groups and push push the message through the media groups so that so that the message about breastfeeding and the benefits and the risks of formula feeding end up like right in front of their faces on a regular basis rather than having these groups of people go out and seek the information and try to get it to be hip and normal and this is what everyone talks about. And I thought that's a good way of thinking about breastfeeding promotion and support. Absolutely. And it makes me think of the other article you mentioned and, you know, how it hit the news that Beyonce was breastfeeding in public and those types of things when they're hitting, when they're on Facebook and different media platforms really do sink into that generation. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah, I think really getting entertainment people involved in breastfeeding just to make it normative uh, is super important, which is what the, um, uh, Best for Babies social marketing group does. I don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. seen the website, but um, they're mm-hmm. they they are great. They they try to um, have that message on their website, but pushing it out is obviously the key, which I agree with. 
Yeah, absolutely, because people who have never thought about breastfeeding aren't going to look for breastfeeding information when the time comes. Right, and a lot of those people are supporting or they're making comments to people who are breastfeeding. So they may not be so interested in breastfeeding and learning more about it, but then they see but then they see their friends or relatives breastfeed and they make comments and the comments can be sort of uneducated comments and by pushing the message then they see it too as being normal. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. Yeah. So um, the other article that I was really uh, wanting to share was about the um, AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics 2012 Breastfeeding Policy Statement, which is titled Breastfeeding and the Use of Human Milk. And Arthur Eidelman, um, who was one of the lead authors, um, spoke about this. And um, the American Academy of Pediatrics has policy statements on a variety of different things and had the first one on breastfeeding in 1997. And it's um, the usual routine for all of these policy statements to be updated every five years. And so it's time for the policy to be updated in 2012. And the um, lead authors worked on it, but it was also approved through a review process by all of the other sections and committees of the academy. So it's really a consensus of the of the um, national um, organization for pediatricians in the United States. and. The interesting thing to me about this policy statement is that in contrast to the previous policy statements, it really um, changed direction a little bit and it de-emphasized details of the management of breastfeeding and really highlighted broader issues that have public health implications. And so rather than um, dealing with clinical management, it was um, sort of directing people to go to the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine clinical protocols as um, the source of authoritative information. And then it highlighted six major issues, um, and those were conceptual change as to the choice of breastfeeding, categorization of health disadvantages of not breastfeeding, focus on duration and exclusivity of breastfeeding, importance of feeding human milk to very low birth weight premature infants, monitoring of growth, and public health data and recommended policies. And so, um, you know, we've talked a lot, I think, in the Academy of Pediatrics about the language that we use, and this focused a little bit on that, and how, um, for instance, we often say now the um, risks of formula feeding because breastfeeding is normative. And so it talks about the fact that the decision to breastfeed should not be considered um, a lifestyle choice, but rather a critical health decision. And that is, you know for the mother, the physician, and the society. And far, as far as exclusivity and duration, it highlighted the, the dose response and that we really do need to, to improve. And in the end, it talked a lot about the fact that we have really improved initiation of breastfeeding rates, but have had a huge drop-off in the, in the duration of breastfeeding, or we've continued to have the drop-off in duration of breastfeeding. And so highlighting policy changes that will address that. The other... Um, area that I thought was really important was discussing feeding of the premature infant and the fact that um, the health risks to premature babies of receiving milk other than breast milk, such as um, necrotizing enterocolitis, really make it 
not just a nutrition issue, but uh, a health issue. And there's a call for um, insurance reimbursement to include the cost of banked human milk for premature babies. Yeah, I thought that was super important. Yeah, absolutely, because I think that the, there are a lot of people trying to really improve the milk banking in this country, but having it be a covered um, requirement for premature babies is going to really help those um, networks to grow and support all of our preemie babies. Yeah, right. No, yeah, right now the hospitals are pretty much uh, footing the bill. Yeah, absolutely. Depending on where you're going. Um, it can be really routine to get donor breast milk in very few places, but in most places, either the hospital is just swallowing the cost or it's just not a possibility for those babies. Right. So then um, the last two things were just uh, reinforcing the idea of using the published WHO growth curves, which are based on data from primarily breastfeeding infants. Yay! And, yeah, <laughs> I feel like this is starting to take off, but a lot of places where I go, they don't they don't really use them. And um, then highlighting public health policies and saying that um, the WHO UNICEF 10-step program for successful breastfeeding is endorsed by the AAP. It really does make a difference in terms of um, the duration and exclusivity that we see in breastfeeding babies. Absolutely. This um, is important for both increasing... Um, the duration, and also so important because of the huge disparities that we see in rates of breastfeeding in different populations. And so when you implement these steps, it really closes the gap between um, the impoverished and um, impoverished women and women of color and helps those babies start out on a level playing field right. um, with babies who had more, inv- more advantages. So I thought this was a really... Um, exciting policy statement and really signals um, that they're going in the right direction. And that's what I felt about this whole this whole meeting. It's just like, yay, we're making progress. Right. Yeah. Just trying to embed embed the importance of breastfeeding in, in all different sectors of society. So we need to take that policy statement and push it through Facebook to all the Facebook, <laughs> <laughs> for, all, for all Facebook users who are physicians who deal with moms and babies. Um, so the last one I want to touch on is kind of short. It's uh, Larry Grummer-Strawn's lecture on the Surgeon General's call to action. Uh, the Surgeon General put out a call to action to support breastfeeding in January of 2011, and that's uh, Surgeon General Regina Benjamin. Uh, she, in her call to action, she outlined 20 action steps to improve ways that breastfeeding women can be supported. Dr. Grummer Strawn, who um, is usually at our Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine meetings, but he wasn't this year, he's chief of the nutrition branch in the Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity with the Center for Disease Control. Yeah, he's a fantastic speaker. He is great to listen to, yeah. And, you know, you, you listen to him talk and you think the CDC just loves breastfeeding. <laughs> just, you know, he represents <laughs> right. them so well. Yeah. So in his article, he, this is sort of an update. What has happened since that call to action? What has the federal government done to support breastfeeding? And there were a lot of things that he mentioned, but I just want to mention five key ones. One is that she called to improve mother-to-mother support and peer counseling, and so the United States Department of Agriculture's peer counseling program was expanded through WIC. 
in order, so the second one is to, in order to create a national campaign to promote breastfeeding, the United States Department of Agriculture is working with a marketing company to launch a campaign on breastfeeding initiation among African American women. And in addition, they added breastfeeding messages to the Text for Baby program. I don't know if you know much about that, but Text for, oh, yeah. yeah, it's T E X T letter number four baby dot org and anyone can go on to that website and get texts sent to them on their cell phone yeah for free for women who they're primarily for women who are pregnant who are due and they put in their due date and then they get appropriate messages according to their month of pregnancy and so now they have breastfeeding messages on them Uh, the third thing is that they've been encouraging maternity hospitals to be more supportive of breastfeeding. And what's been happening is that there are more and more hospitals who are becoming baby-friendly. And in addition, the Indian Health Service has committed to helping all of their 13 Indian Health Service hospitals to become baby-friendly. Also, the Joint Commission launched a new Speak Up campaign on what you need to know about breastfeeding. The Joint Commission, if you go to their website, has all these Speak Up campaigns like how to talk to your doctor and how to talk about end of life. And so now they have a new Speak Up campaign on what you need to know about breastfeeding where they have posters and little videos that you can watch to encourage people to learn more about breastfeeding. That's cool. I didn't yeah. know that that existed. Yeah, I didn't know much about the Speak Up campaigns either, but you can go to the Joint Commission, just Google uh, Joint Commission Speak Up, and you'll see all these different Speak Up campaigns, and they have these really cool posters that you can use on different topics. Um, the other thing is that the human um, Health and Human Services now requires health plans to cover comprehensive lactation support and equipment at no cost to patients. And the which it has been some some healthcare plans have started it. I think the rule is that they will begin this coverage when they write new policies. So although it was enacted in, on August first, many people haven't seen the benefits of that yet. But in addition, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid issued a Medicaid coverage of lactation services briefing which encourages states to cover lactation services for their Medicaid beneficiaries. And lastly, um, you know, the the Affordable Health Care Act has this new uh, rule for employers that they have to allow reasonable break time for nursing mothers. And so what the federal government is doing is they have trained, the Department of Labor has trained field investigators to check out companies to make sure that they're abiding by that. So I thought that was really great because a lot of people wondered, well, is that really going to be enforced? How, you know, what's the ramifications of companies that don't do this? So, so I think that the federal government has taken this to heart and they're really working on trying to fulfill the call to action. So that was exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah. So we just have to keep putting out the message and and really empower our patients who we see to let them know that this stuff is out there and that there is support for them if they feel uncomfortable or insecure about speaking up for themselves. There sure is a lot of stuff out there that they can use to support themselves. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a beginning, I feel like. It's starting to move in the right direction. Right, right, yeah. I heard a interview with a former governor of Vermont. She was the first female governor of Vermont, and she had three terms. And 
she said that maternity leave, of course, is super important, paid maternity leave. And we are one of three countries, democratized countries in the world that does not have paid maternity leave, us, Ghana, and Papua New Guinea. (laughs) And boy, would that have a huge impact on breastfeeding rates. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. About that all the time over here. Yeah. Well, this was a lot of fun, Anne, and I'm looking forward to doing it again soon. Sounds great. Have a good weekend. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks. All right. Bye. Bye. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med dot org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.